0: Hi, everybody, and welcome to Martin Van Dyke Undercovers for January 2019, produced in partnership with the Ann Arbor District Library. This month's interview is with author Thor Hansen about his new book, Buzz, The Nature and Necessity of bees. Now, bees are like oxygen, ubiquitous, essential, and for the most part unseen, while we might overlook them, they lie at the heart of relationships that bind the human and natural worlds. In Thor's new book, Buzz, he takes us on a journey that begins 125 million years ago, when a wasp first dared to feed pollen To its young, from honeybees and bumblebees to lesser-known diggers, miners, leafcutters, and masons, bees have long been central to our harvests, our mythologies, and our very existence. They've given us sweetness and light, the beauty of flowers, and as much as a third of the foodstuffs that we eat. And very alarmingly, bees are at risk of disappearing. As informative and enchanting as the waggle dance of a honeybee, Buzz shows us why all bees are wonders to celebrate and protect. I began my interview with Thor Hansen by asking him how he first got interested in the natural world and how he got interested specifically in writing a book about bees. Well,
1: I uh, you know, am just a naturally curious person, and I think that led me very uh, easily into a career in science where one asks questions for a living. And so my background is in conservation biology and, and botany and these sorts of things. Uh, and then it also also just transpired that I came into writing very naturally because it it allows me to delve deeply into these topics that fascinate me so much. And so what I've come up with at this point is sort of a combination of science and, and storytelling, really. And I think it fills a, a a niche that we really need, and that is translating scientific discoveries and ideas for a wider audience. Which is you know something that many scientists don't have the time or or don't have the interest to do, and so uh, it uh, sort of fills a gap I think in our you know, communication about these important ideas to a, a, a broad audience, and and it's, you know, happily something that I really enjoy doing, so it has turned out to be hmm. quite a, a, a good combination for me.
0: And, and why a book specifically about bees?
1: Sure. Well, you know, the bees are totally fascinating creatures, and I became interested in them when I was doing graduate work and studying large rainforest trees down in Central America. And I'd gone out into the landscape there and genetically fingerprinted all of the adult trees in a particular landscape because I wanted to understand how the population worked. And I could see then how seeds were being dispersed and all sorts of things. And I also knew from the genetic data that there was something moving pollen around up there out of sight, far above me in the rainforest canopy. And because the tree was a member of the pea family with these big purple pea flowers, just like the sweet peas or garden peas in your backyard, I knew that the something up there had to be bees. And so I spent a futile couple of weeks trying to catch those bees uh, with a, an entomologist friend of mine. We were uh, firing lines up into the canopy and hauling up all manner of insect traps, and we caught a grand total of zero bees. Uh, so it was a failure scientifically, but it sparked within me this fascination for bees that simply wouldn't rest. And I've been, well, really looking for ways to chase after them in, in my work and, and in daily
0: life ever since. How far back do bees go? I mean, about how many of them species are there? I mean, how, how old did they go back in like the, the chain of evolution and what did they evolve from? It's a marvelous
1: question, a marvelous question how long have bees been around and where did they come from? And some of it is still shrouded in mystery. We know the the basic outline of this story, but there are very few fossils of bees from this time. So uh, what we do know is that bees evolved from wasps, that wasps came first and bees evolved from them, and they still look quite a lot alike, which is why the two groups are so often confused. But if you find yourself being harassed at a picnic, and you see your attackers going after the fried chicken or the uh, bologna in the sandwiches, then don't blame bees, because (laughs) your attackers must certainly be wasps. Wasps are carnivores. They are hunters and scavengers constantly out there scouring the landscape for bits of meat or for insects or spiders that they hunt uh, to take home and feed to their their babies, their larvae, back in the nest. Bees evolved from the wasps by developing a vegetarian habit. They switched from being hunters to being gatherers, if you will. They switched over to provisioning themselves and their offspring solely from the products of flowers. And this transition occurred right when the flowering plants were just beginning to spread and diversify around the world. And that was in the mid-Cretaceous period, approximately 120 million years ago. So bees evolved during a period of time famously dominated by the dinosaurs, but it was also a a very important and uh, significant time for the evolution of plants with the spread of the flowering plants uh, and the evolution, of course, of, of the bees, which uh, is a group that co-evolved with those plants as they were spreading and diversifying changes in the flowers, uh, were inspired or, uh, by you know, the need to attract pollinators, and, uh, and of course the bees' bodies adapted then uh, to uh, their new lifestyle by developing uh, you know, long tube-like tongues for sipping nectar and feathery branched hairs for the transport of pollen from flowers back to the nest.
0: Now, do both male and females bees sting? Do they all have the capability of stinging?
1: Ah, uh, yes, the stingers, the stingers <laughs> well. Yeah. What we know is that no male bees, Mm. And, and that is because the stinger itself evolved from what biologists call the ovipositor, which is the egg-laying device oh. in these insects. And since only females lay eggs, they are the ones who have the equipment that could be modified into a stinger. So male bees cannot sting uh, because they just don't have the structure to do so. Uh, and we know, too, that many female bees really don't sting or rarely sting. There are many groups of bees where that habit has been reduced a great uh, uh Family of, or group of stingless bees live in the tropics. Hundreds of species, and also uh, several hundred species of mining bees and and digger bees that, that either can't sting any longer or
0: rarely, rarely do so. I mentioned uh, as we got rolling before we turn on the microphone, my my love of bumblebees going back to my childhood. So you've you've got to indulge me in a question or two about bumblebees. How are these things able to fly? There, some of them are so. Gigantic! It doesn't seem really physically possible that they're even able to fly. What's what's the the mystery behind the ability of these rather large bees, like bumblebees, to be able to actually fly? Well,
1: it's a wonderful question and one that people have sort of uh, pondered for for years. In fact, uh, there was a famous story about some engineers who did the math and, and claimed that it was simply impossible for insects like bumblebees to fly because the, uh, the body mass you know, to wing uh, ratio was too big. These bulky, bulky creatures couldn't possibly get off the ground. Uh, but what, of course, those calculations were based on were fixed-wing aircraft like the airplanes that we fly around in, where you do need to have a certain uh, surface area of the wing and a certain speed uh, to get off the ground. Uh, but what that forgets about bumblebees is that the the wings are anything but fixed. In fact, they are marvelously flexible. And uh, mobile in how they flap, not just up and down, but forward and backward, uh, constantly adjusting to you know the wind direction, wind speed, constantly adjusting to air pressure. They've done some fascinating experiments that show, in fact, that bumblebees are particularly good flyers because of the, way they, the ways in which they can move their wings by lowering the air pressure in these tanks full of bumblebees. They've shown that, in fact, they could, they could keep flying even in air as thin as the air at the top of Mount Everest. Wow. Uh, they, they are so nimble in how they adjust their, their wing motions uh, that they're fantastic flyers, in fact.
0: So I've got these thistle plants in the backyard, uh, which just reached peak bloom a couple weeks ago and all, all the way back to when I was a little boy. The bumblebees, just like clockwork, are all on these thistle plants get, getting the pollen. And, uh, so is it the color? They're bright purple. Are they able to perceive color super well? Is that what is attracting them to these particular plants or is it smell or, or what is it? Well, it's a combination
1: of things, but you hit upon something important in that purple and blue, these colors fall in the middle of the bee's visual spectrum. Also things like yellows, some of those colors, they would be far less common and, and perhaps wouldn't exist in flowers at all if there hadn't been a need to advertise for the services of bees. So oh. those colors are... are uh, very commonly associated with attracting bees as pollinators. And you'll notice a, a lovely aroma of those thistles as well. Yeah. Scent is another common bee related trait, and that bees are very, very attuned to you know, chemicals in their environment, including the molecules that give us odors. And so they can sense these things through their antennae. They have uh, o- over, well, at least seven distinct sensory organs located on those antennae. If you can imagine having your nose at the end of a long stalk that also contained your taste buds and uh, and uh, you know skin as as uh, sensitive as your fingertips, that's sort of what these antennae are like. They are remarkably good at picking up all sorts of. Uh, information from the environment of bees, including odors. These, you know, just a few molecules of scent that drift on the breeze from flowers can help bees navigate to that blossom and so those things are indeed attracting your bumblebees to those thistles in the yard
0: and let's move on to the subject of bees in general thor so so how much of the of the food that we eat is dependent on bees helping out with the, with uh, the pollination they're hugely important we just don't think of this very much on a daily basis do we
1: well, we tend to take it for granted it yeah. doesn 't think about bees when you 're you know biting into a sandwich <laughs> or, or whatever it may be that you're that you 're eating for your breakfast, your lunch, your dinner, but it 's really hard to have a meal that isn 't strongly influenced by bees it 's often said that every third bite of food in our diet is reliant in some ways upon bee pollination wow, and wow. that is a, a remarkable statistic anyway, but there are many of Uh, You know, ways to parse those numbers, and it's even more informative to think about the diversity of food in our diet and the fact that a full 75% of our top 115 food crops either rely upon or benefit from bee pollination it, meaning that it, it, they they show up in all sorts of unexpected places you know vegetable oils when you're uh, frying something in canola oil you don't think about bees but in fact the canola plant is a mustard plant that is pollinated by bees and mm. if you're going to have oil from canola seed those seeds need to get uh, those flowers need to get pollinated to produce seed so it's everything from you know vegetable oils to paprika to uh, our spices and uh you know many many things that we don't necessarily think about the way we might if we were eating a strawberry or or uh, you know a vegetable or a fruit that was uh, you know, more intuitively linked to bees. It goes far beyond that. They're very, very deeply entwined in our food systems.
0: It's been within the last what, a decade or so? Unfortunately, we, we are thinking much more about bees, and it's because of a, a, a terrible thing that has been going on, and this is worldwide, correct? This colony collapse disorder, which is a, really a serious problem in terms of the number of bees that are, are, are just not... Surviving, and you write uh, qu- quite a bit about this, and it looks like there's there's more than one cause. And in, is the story getting a, a little bit more optimistic in terms of people being able to help bees in, in and make this stop? It's a serious problem.
1: It is, and if there is a silver lining to colony collapse, it is the vast amount of research that it inspired. Uh-huh. When this. Sprang upon the scene in in 2006. Uh, You know, beekeepers, honeybee keepers, our domestic honeybees, uh, these beekeepers started noticing, you know, vast losses. They would come to, to hives that had apparently been healthy and find them just emptied of bees. It was this great mystery. And it began here in North America and then spread to Europe as well in the years that followed. And that got people looking into what would be causing it. And also looking at what might be affecting native bees. So what began as a search for, for a cause for you know a malady affecting one species has grown really into a concern about what may be affecting all bees. Because the one thing that has become clear now after a decade of, of research is that it's more than one thing. You know colony collapse in its uh, truest form with these empty hives uh is actually on the wane there are you know still massive bee losses, but colony collapse accounts for only five. Uh, or 10% of them. So what people have learned, in fact, that it's more uh, accurate to think of this as something like a multiple stress disorder, Mm. where you see bees suffering from a number of things in their environment. And, And several of the key ones have been summarized as what they call the four P's being pesticides and and pathogens and parasites and also what uh, they call poor nutrition uh, which simply refers to the lack of flowers in many of our landscapes where we are developing areas you know in urbanizing areas but also out in our rural landscapes where changes in farming practices have uh, altered those landscapes so that we no longer have you know a diversity of crops in small farming sort of situations or crops that are separated by hedgerows that may have you know a lot of flowers in them. We tend to grow things very efficiently now, but mass producing one crop over vast acreage means that even if it is a flowering plant attractive to bees, it will only provide food for a few weeks out of the year. And then for the rest of the year, that whole landscape there without hedgerows and, and without other crops interspersed is virtually a desert. And so we see then a real drop off in uh, flowers in our rural areas, as well as the development that's going on. And it has led to, a you know, an, in, in a sense, sort of a nutrition crisis for bees that, that combines with all these other factors uh, to create an overall problem with bee health, affecting honeybees, but also many of our wild and native bees, like your bumblebees, or the, or the 20,000 other species of bees that inhabit our planet.
0: So final question, Thor, what, what can the average person do to, to help the decline of bees? What, what can the person you know, who owns the house or you know, got a little piece of land, what, what can they plant, what, what can they do to, to, to help?
1: Well, this is one of the encouraging signs, and that is that bees respond to help if you plant more flowers, if you provide more floral resources, you will experience something that can be very rare in conservation biology, and that is instant gratification. (laughs) Uh, If you add thistles to your yard as as you have uh, in your backyard, uh, you see bees finding them. They're always on the lookout. And so when we increase the floral resources and reduce pesticide use and uh, provide more nesting habitat, which can be as simple as, as bare ground for, for ground nesting bees or uh, paper tubes or holes in wood for the cavity nesters, a variety of ways to do so. Just there in your backyard uh, or in the closest park or along roadsides or even a window box in a, in an urban apartment can provide habitat. When we do these things, we find that the bees respond and respond quickly. So we are learning that even in places that are very heavily industrially farmed, uh, by adding in, putting hedgerows back in the landscape, bees immediately or very soon will colonize those places and provide more pollination services and, and more diversity in those landscapes. So we're seeing that bees respond uh, even to our backyard remedies, and and so it's just at the beginning, but we do see a, a b- the beginning of a turnaround in how we can get out there and help the bees. There are some great organizations working on this, and even some response now from large corporations that are requiring more bee-friendly practices in their supply chains. You know, groups like General Mills, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh so you look for labels now on products there's a new a new uh uh certification program for bee friendly products that should be hitting in the next year or two that will help you as a consumer even get out and do things for bees in deciding what you choose to consume.
0: Thanks for listening to Martin Van Undercovers for January 2019. Our interview was with Thor Hansen about his book, Buzz, The Nature and Necessity of Bees. This has been a presentation of the Ann Arbor District Library. Mama bee, Mama bee, please come back to me. Mama bee, Mama bee, please come back to me. He got the best old sound, and if I'm big am, won't sing.